Oh, yay. Oh, yay. This is SCOTUS Talk, a nonpartisan podcast about the Supreme Court for lawyers and non-lawyers alike. Brought to you by SCOTUS Blog. Welcome to SCOTUS Talk. I'm Amy Howe. Thanks for joining us. We have a very special guest today, Marsha Coyle, who has covered the Supreme Court for more than three decades. You may know her from her excellent work in print for the National Law Journal, or you may know her from her regular appearances on the PBS NewsHour, where she breaks down the court's decisions in a way that is accessible to everyone. Marsha has retired from the National Law Journal, but fortunately for all of us, she will continue to appear on the PBS NewsHour. Marsha Coyle, thanks so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to be with you, Amy. I want to start at the beginning of your career as a journalist. Did you always want to be a journalist? No, I don't think I did. Uh, I uh, I was a voracious reader as a young person and uh, loved writing and thought with a lot of hubris, I'm sure, that I could write the great American novel someday. Uh, but I kind of fell into journalism uh, when I got into college. Uh, the college newspaper was falling apart. Uh, nobody wanted uh, to be the editor of it. Uh, but I had a close friend who worked on it, and she actually talked me into becoming the editor of the newspaper, the college newspaper. And I saw it as a challenge and took it on, uh, rebuilt the staff, and actually enjoyed it. Uh, one part that I really loved, which is sort of weird, is that I loved going down to the Frederick News Post, which printed the paper. Uh, once a week, I would go down, and they had laid it out. And I would uh, work with, uh, I guess he was an editor and a printer uh, on the layout, which I sometimes uh, had uh, blown a bit. And he would teach me, you know, how to crop and how to reposition things. And I just loved that. So uh, I, I just, you know, got used to it and enjoyed it. And then when I got into my senior year and I faced, what are you going to do with the rest of your life? Uh, I had sort of two areas I was interested in, journalism and law, and uh, thought, well, I don't know that I can find the money to go to law school, uh, but I need something, some, you know, real training in journalism because my college didn't offer any journalism courses. And that's when I decided to go to uh, Northwestern University for my master's in journalism. And that, that worked really well for me. Uh, I went, it was a year round program. You could get your master's uh, in one year. And the first part of it, you were really drilled in the basics of journalism, the writing, the reporting. And uh, then I spent uh, their winter session. You know, I was no fool. You know, I was in Chicago. I decided to come to D.C. <laughs> I was in Northwestern in the winter, yes. That's right. So I, I, I took my, the winter session in D.C. where they had a program where uh, newspapers and radio stations around the country that didn't have Washington correspondence used the Northwestern graduate students. And believe it or not, I was assigned the Supreme Court beat. And uh, I've just been so lucky in my life, Amy. What can I say? Uh, I love the Supreme Court. In fact, my first front page story uh, was out of Miles City, Montana. The court had a case and a decision. Uh, and uh, Miles City, Montana newspaper played it on their front page. So uh I, I loved the court. I loved the reporters who were there. Uh, I loved the challenge of learning the cases. And uh, when I, when the program was over in D.C., uh, the retired reporter who ran the program said to me, well, do you think you're ever going to come back? And I said, yes, I'm going to come back. But And when I come back, I'm going to cover the Supreme Court. So, you know, journalism stuck. And so did the Supreme Court. 
It did indeed. So you didn't come back immediately. No. What did you no. do after you finished your master's? I went looking for a job, uh, sent out the usual 1,000 uh, cover letters and got no replies. Uh, my mother came with me on a trip up New England because uh, I thought, gee, that would be a nice place to live and work at a small town newspaper. Uh, so we had a great time, but I didn't get a job. Came back home and did what we many of us say we'll never do. Decided to go to my hometown newspaper uh, and ask if you know they had any openings. And the uh, editor-in-chief of the paper told me I was overqualified for the one opening he had. And I said, I didn't care. Uh, what was the opening? Well, it was the obit desk. And so <laughs> that's how I started on the obit desk. And also I would take notes from, they had correspondents who really weren't journalists, but they would go to all these little town meetings, uh, school board meetings, and then they'd call in with their notes from what happened. And I would take those notes and I, you know, form them into stories uh, at the same time, I got to know their Harrisburg correspondent, State House reporter, uh, because I would take his dictation. Uh, they didn't have, uh, he didn't have a fax machine in those days. We didn't have, oh God, I my age. You may need myself. to explain to some of our younger listeners what dictation I is. I know, I know. My God, I better <laughs> shut up now before you think I'm you know what it years is. old. Uh, but I took his dictation and got to know him a bit. At one point, he told me, that my newspaper was thinking of expanding the State House Bureau. And he said, I should go after that job. And once again, you know, you know I marched into the publisher's office this time and uh, said why I thought I should be the next State House correspondent. And he, he said, yes. Uh, and they sent me to Harrisburg. Uh, and I think they got me very cheaply. That's why uh, they, they let me go. Um, but it was a great beat. Oh my gosh, I covered... Uh, state politics, uh, people who later came to Washington, Arlen Specter, Dick Thornburg. Uh, I was there during Three Mile Island, that, you know, covered that. Uh, it was a great beat. Uh, but at some point, I started getting tired. Uh, I didn't know if I was tired of journalism or tired of Harrisburg. It had been about nine years, I guess. Probably tired of Harrisburg, which didn't have a lot to offer anybody. Uh, so I thought, well, what would I do if I woke up some morning and hated my job? And I thought, law, let's go to law school. And so that's what I did. I applied. I went nights. Uh, my first two years of night school, I commuted between Harrisburg and Baltimore. I was three Where did hours, you sleep? I was three hours on the road. I didn't. Uh, in fact, I often had to go right back. At my last class, I think, was over at 10. And I had to go right back to the state house, which was in an one of its uh, interminable budget arguments or abortion arguments. And my colleagues who were like a second family, they would cover for me. Uh, so I could go right back into the state house and pick up the debate and make my morning news deadline, which is usually about 2 a.m. So- exhausted just thinking about this. <laughs> yeah, it was quite, I look back on it and I think I must've been nuts uh, to do that, but- uh, after two years of night school, my newspaper decided to open a Washington bureau. So they asked me to do it. And I thought, well, that's good. I can finish commuting now between you know, Washington and Baltimore. I opened the uh, first Washington bureau for the Allentown newspapers uh, in the National Press Building. We had an office and I covered Pennsylvania congressional delegation. I went to national political conventions. 
I finished the final two years of law school, took the bar exam and decided to see if I could combine law and journalism. The National Law Journal had a bureau two floors above my bureau. Went up one day, knocked on the door. Uh, they had a vacancy. Uh, I applied for the job, got the job. Uh, three months later, the bureau chief who covered the Supreme Court uh, went to the LA Times and no one in the bureau wanted the Supreme Court beat except me. And I got it. I got it. So you see, as I said, I've I've been so fortunate. Uh, you know, I lived under a lucky star for so long. I don't know. That sounds more like doing a really good job and putting yourself out there to make it in luck. <laughs> well, thank you. That's that's very kind of you. Uh, but I got the Supreme Court beat. And uh, as they say, the rest is history. So just for reference, what year did you start covering the court? 1987. I started in March. So it was a term where there was about 150 cases on the docket to be decided. Uh, a novel idea. <laughs> <laughs> and I was always running to try to catch up because, uh, you know, I came in on, in, on March yeah. of the term. And uh, when June rolled around, Justice Lewis Powell retired uh, and uh, then began sort of the next phase of my education as a Supreme Court reporter. A, a U.S. Senate confirmation. Yeah. Um, so has the way that you've covered the court changed since you started other than that, you know, in addition to the idea that there are no longer 150 cases a term? <laughs> well, it has, but more uh, in terms of uh, my newspaper, the National Law Journal. Uh, when I started at the Law Journal, it was a uh, full tabloid print publication. And uh, I was told when I began by the editor never to put a word on paper until I had mastered all, everything about that issue or case because I had a very sophisticated audience. And for a front page story, which is, was really the premier spot, uh, we were given three weeks to do a front page story. And I could travel, you know, I could go and get the human aspect as well as the legal aspect of it. Uh, but over time, uh, all of us in journalism have experienced changes primarily because of the internet. And uh, the Law Journal uh, went through a lot of changes. Uh, today, uh, it's a monthly magazine, uh, but all of our work is daily journalism. It's all on the web. And so there, uh, we experienced the same deadlines that AP would have to deal with. Uh, and so I don't have the luxury of taking my time to really learn everything about a case that I, you know, before I actually write about it. And I don't, uh, with tightening journalist, journalism budgets, you know, I don't get to travel uh, as I used to. So that's changed. And as you know, the court has changed too. Certainly the docket has shrunk. Uh, and uh, today we have live streaming of uh, oral arguments, which really makes a, a difference for many of us, uh, especially if we, we know the court well. Uh, there isn't the need to actually see them and we know their voices. Um, uh, we get transcripts um, and uh, that's extremely helpful. You probably remember the time where when we didn't get the transcripts in good time, that after every oral argument, you'd see this huddle in the press room 
where everybody's trying to compare quotes uh, that maybe they missed this quote or that quote. Uh, and you really don't have to worry about that anymore if you get the transcript, unless you're under pressure to get something uh, on the, you know, up and out quickly, as we, as we you know, often can be at the end of the term. So uh, that's changed uh, a lot. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I, you know, and I have, we have computers now, Amy. <laughs> also true, yeah. Yeah, no more fax machines, no more IBM Selectric typewriters. <laughs> Although there is still that typewriter in the Supreme Court press room, if anyone's there ever interested in You're going to old school right. on us. You're right. And if you see in the background on my bookcase, you see that that old Underwood manual? That's I what I actually yeah, I had to use when I first went to Harrisburg, the State House. In 2013, you published a book called yeah. The Roberts Court. So not, not a novel, but a book. Um, the book focuses on four decisions of the Roberts Court, Obamacare, Citizens United, District of Columbia versus Heller, and the Parents Involved case, in which the court struck down the consideration of race in efforts to maintain racial diversity in schools. Um, you write in the foreword, this was 2013, that these decisions showed a confident conservative majority with a muscular sense of power, a notable disdain for Congress, and a willingness to act aggressively and in distinctly unconservative ways. <laughs> so, you know, 10 years later, this seems like, you know, the more <laughs> things change, the more they stay the same. Uh Boy, wasn't I prescient. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Didn't realize how brilliant I was back then. Uh, uh, yeah, actually, it's it's very true and probably uh, more so now, I guess you could say, on steroids. Right. <laughs> uh, this uh, super conservative majority is, uh, I think, definitely uh, much more aggressive uh, than uh, what I saw back in 2013, which was maybe the beginning of uh, the real beginning of the Roberts Court. So um, yeah, uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, it's you know very much more so than what I wrote in 2013. So for those of us who have never written a book, what is the process like? I mean, apparently you're used to operating on no sleep, but did you <laughs> did you take a book leave? Did you no. did you juggle your day your day job in the book? I did. I did. Uh, with this kind of book, though, I was fortunate that, you know, I knew the cases pretty well. Uh, what I had to get were uh, some of the uh, the people behind the cases, you know, the more human aspect of it. Uh, so in terms of the reporting, I could do a, a lot of it while I was working. Uh, and I had, you know, it, you know, I wasn't trying to cheat my newspaper. I had a wonderful editor-in-chief who wanted me to do the book, you know, who loved the Supreme Court and followed it and encouraged me to do it. Uh, and also knew that, you know, if I, I was, well, we, I wasn't willing to give up my salary. <laughs> I had a family to support with, along with my husband. So, uh, you know, he worked it so that I had the time uh, to uh, get the reporting done. And uh, once again, I was very fortunate that uh, the lawyers that were involved in the cases were willing to talk to me. They knew me, they knew the law, or they knew the law journal. And so, uh, you know, they gave me as much time as I needed with follow-up. Uh, the writing actually took place over the summer when mm -hmm. uh, the court is out. And uh, my son at the time uh, had finished his junior year in college and enlisted in the Marine Corps Reserve. So he went to Paris Island 
uh, for that summer. So he wasn't home. Uh, my daughter was of an age that she didn't want me around anyway. <laughs> she was a teenager. <laughs> <laughs> so it, the only one who suffered was my husband, who uh, I'd often hear this voice uh, wafting up from the family room downstairs. Are you ever coming out of that room? <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> it was, uh, yeah, I was very fortunate that the editor uh, was behind me 100% and got it done. But I will tell you, I learned a lot from that process, especially know how to uh, keep notes so that when you do your footnotes, you're not going back through pages and pages of notes mm -hmm. uh, the hard way. And it's a it's a lonely process. It's an isolating process. Uh, so it's uh, it was a it was a very good experience. And I had a great editor at Simon and Schuster. The, she was the legendary Alice Mayhew. She was Bob Woodward's editor, uh, as as well as a number of other journalists whose names you would know. So uh, she's dead now, but uh, I was very fortunate. So I'm going to fast forward a couple of years after the book came out to 2016, when you reported that a woman in Alaska had accused Justice Clarence Thomas of groping her at a dinner party in 1999. How did you get that story? Can, I mean, what can you say about how you got the story? Uh, I can't say who gave it to me, but I can say that uh, uh, somebody saw a post that she had put on Facebook and I never would have seen it because I don't do Facebook. I only did it when my kids were teens to keep an eye on what they were doing. <laughs> so uh, somebody, uh, a lawyer who knew her, uh, saw the post and uh, contacted her and asked her if she would be willing to talk about it with a reporter. And this lawyer recommended me as the reporter. So, uh, and it wasn't someone, the lawyer wasn't someone I deal with regularly, but certainly knew. And uh, so uh, she, you know, contacted me and was scared to death about talking. And so we spent a lot of time just talking and, you know, I wanted her to get to know me and uh, I wanted, definitely wanted to get to know her to see if this was something legitimate. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, uh, it, it, it took a lot of time, uh, before we really sat down for a formal interview. Can you tell us anything else about once you decided and she decided to move forward sort of the, the process again of investigating and reporting the story? Yes. Uh, I worked very closely at the time with my DC editor, Mike Starcella, and you know we knew that we had to cover every possible angle and question here, uh, leave no stone unturned, and you know I, I think we did that. Uh, we talked to, we tried to corroborate her story. Uh, she was a Truman Scholar in DC when this happened, a young person. I think I called like forty of the ninety. Truman scholars uh, to see if, you know, I was trying to find who was at this dinner with her when the incident occurred. Uh, you know, we talked to the head of the program at the time. Uh, you know, I asked her questions that were very, very personal. And, uh, you know, they were questions that I needed to know to judge her and her credibility. Uh, but they weren't necessarily answers that I had to print. 
Uh, but she, you know, I, I give her a lot of credit. I mean, she did come through and answer those questions, honestly. Uh, Talked to, I think it was her former husband as well, to judge her credibility. Uh, and uh, it, it was it was very intense reporting, very intense. And then also I wanted to get, you know, something from Justice Thomas and wasn't sure at all that I would would get that. But I went to Kathy Arberg uh, with, a, you know, sort of like a, not a, a draft of the story, but what the, the bulk of the story would say and asked, obviously asked for an interview, which I knew I wasn't going to get, uh, but asked her to give it to him and see if she could get a comment. And uh, he did come through with a comment. You know, I, I, you know, I, he didn't have to comment, but he did, and he denied it, and I expected that, but I needed that from him. I needed something from him. And so we were, uh, you know, we we really put a lot of energy into it. Uh, you know, we had a hard time tracking down the head of the Truman program at the time, and I remember Mike at one point saying, I'll go to his house. I'll camp out on his front lawn until we find <laughs> You know, we were that determined to get everything we could. Uh, we, we, you know, we found information about her husband. Yes. Uh, we wanted to, you know, who was politically involved and uh, in Alaska. And because we wanted to be sure that, you know, we knew there would be criticism of this story. And we wanted to be sure we had answered it as anything possible that uh, could uh, be used against the story. How long would you say it took from the point at which you know, someone alerted you to the Facebook post to when it was published? Well, that's a good question. I'm trying to remember. I think we published in October. I really can't remember. It was it was several months. And then we had to bring in our lawyer, of course. And, you know, all other editors. And I remember, you know, the day before publication sitting in our conference room in DC with, with everybody on the phone. And the final word was the editor in chief at the time up in New York said, okay, is it good for you, Marsha? <laughs> Meaning, is, are we ready? Uh -huh. and, you know, feeling the weight of all that. Uh, yes. And, and also, you know, very much aware that, you know, my reputation with the court was uh, at issue here too. And I will say, as far as I could tell, it had no effect on uh, my ability to deal with the justices afterwards. That was actually my next question was, you know, so what happened for you after the story was published? Well, aside from my email and my Twitter account blowing up sure. uh, and uh, hearing from some PBS viewers who, uh, as one said, uh, you know, I put you on a pedestal and you have fallen off uh, because I thought the story was very straight down the middle that, you know, it wasn't, you know, it didn't lean one way or the other. And all I could tell people was read the story uh, and judge for yourself. Uh, but no, there, there was no, there was no impact. It, it was carried all over the world because uh, I did form a, a clip file on it and uh, it was pretty amazing. And I think it would have had, you know, le longer legs, except the very next day, James Comey announced that he was reopening the Hillary Clinton email investigation on the laptop. <laughs> and ah. so we sort of got knocked off the front pages. Yes. But uh, no, there, there, there was, there were no really negative uh, impacts for me. So you may have just answered this, 
But one of the things that I was thinking when I went back and read it again was that your story came out before the Me Too movement really gathered steam. Yes. And wondering whether, like, you think anything would have been different if you'd published the story in 2019 instead of 2016? I think it may have been. I think uh, this Alaskan lawyer would have had much more public support. Uh, and uh, I know that uh, Anita Hill, who uh, did comment about the story at, at one point, uh, felt that uh, there should have been an investigation uh, of it. But uh, yeah, I, we just missed the Me Too era. So yeah, I think, I think it would have had uh, longer legs, as they say. Are there particular moments covering the court that stand out to you as you think back? Oh yeah, there's so many. Um, you know, first I'd have to say the confirmation hearings, but there were also moments you know, in and out of the court in the court, I will always remember Justice Breyer reading the summary of his dissent in Parents Involved uh, and just how passionate he was about how the court was wrong uh, and watching and seeing uh, John Roberts while Breyer was reading it and his, clenching his jaw constantly, which you know showed me he was emotional as well. Uh, also outside of the court, the day of the same-sex marriage decision, the sheer joy uh, that spilled out onto the plaza where people were not allowed, but the Supreme Court police, I think wisely did not try to remove anybody, but just stood on the steps of the court to make sure that you know nobody ran into the court. But it was just uh, it was just amazing the the joy that you know unfurled uh, after that decision. So um, those things do stand out. And, and there are many, many, many other moments, certainly Bush v. Gore and how tense that time was uh, as the court was deciding the presidency. Uh, so yes, I, I have, have many moments that stand out. What's been your favorite part about covering the court? I think uh, there are several. Uh, first and foremost is walking into that building every day or almost every day, and knowing what it stands for, uh, and the sheer majesty of the building, uh, going into the courtroom, and how intimate it is that you are so close to the justices, uh, and uh, you know, knowing that uh, you know they're making decisions that are going to affect the lives of many people or not. Uh, so I think being in the courtroom, walking into the building, our favorite parts. Uh, just, you know, for me, the most rewarding part of covering the court are the cases, the challenge of understanding the legal issues, uh, knowing that behind almost every case is a very human story, even the corporate cases. Uh, so, uh, you know, that's what, what kept me engaged and still keeps me engaged. Uh, the stories behind the cases, uh, the, the lawyers, uh, talking to them. Uh, They're so generous with their time and also the academics who are so generous. I mean, I, so many of them I cold called who didn't know me and yet were willing to uh, share their insights into these cases. So uh, I think, you know, all of those are my favorite parts of covering the court. You are, as I said at the outset, going to continue to appear regularly on the PBS NewsHour. 
what are you looking at, looking for, for this term and going forward? Well, first, and I think most immediately, uh, I'm, I'm waiting for Justice Jackson's uh, first opinion for the court. I mean, we've seen, we've seen how she writes because she's done two dissenting opinions uh, from uh, cert grants, but writing an opinion for the court is different. Uh, and I think you have a different kind of voice. I, I wanna see what that voice is. I wanna see if it's a unanimous opinion, if it's not, you know, who did she, who was she able to pull into a majority, which you know, may reflect on her ability to form a, a certain amount of consensus. So I'm waiting for that. Uh, I'm also anxious to see, you know, how aggressive uh, the court's uh, majority, conservative majority may be in terms of precedence. And of course, we're all watching, you know, the affirmative action precedents to see what's going to happen there. But there are other precedents that, uh, in fact, just this week, Justice Gorsuch threw out one, you know, maybe we should, you know, discard this uh, or this isn't working. Maybe, maybe we shouldn't follow it. So th they're obviously rethinking a lot of jurisprudence. And so I'm going to be watching what they do there. Um, and then uh, uh, obviously uh, I'm interested in how the Biden administration policies are going to fare before this super conservative majority. And we'll get a hint of that in February uh, with the student loan plan that's being challenged as well as Title 42. Uh, and then finally, John Roberts. You know, I want I want to see you know what's going to happen with John Roberts. Uh, where's he going to be uh, in some of these tough cases uh, that he's not so predictable in? Uh, and uh, you know, he has gone from you know it's the Roberts Court to it's no longer the Roberts Court. You know, is it going to come back to the Roberts Court or is it the Kavanaugh Court? Now, I I don't know, but I'm going to be watching the internal dynamics of the court. Uh, I felt too, uh, and, and maybe I'm overreading it, so I'm going to keep watching, that there's been a certain edge to some of the uh, justices' questions and comments during oral arguments. I don't know if you picked up on that at all, Amy, did you? Yes. Yeah. Uh, I mean, things are, tends to be, tend to be fairly tense in the courtroom yeah, these days. Right, exactly. So I, I want to watch that and see if that is still just the reaction to last term. Uh, by some of them, uh, or whether uh, it's carrying over now. Uh, and of course, the unanswered question is the leak. <laughs> will we ever know? <laughs> uh, <laughs> my feeling is we will never know. So uh, at least not until some justices papers come out and I'll be long dead before any of those papers come out. So uh, anyway. Good. Yeah, join the club. Um. <laughs> that's about, that's about <laughs> it, what I'm looking forward to are looking for going forward. Well, it's great to know what you will be watching and we'll all be watching you on the PBS NewsHour. So thank you, Marcia Coyle, for joining us. This has been such a treat. Well, it's a treat for me too, Amy. And thank you for uh, giving me some of your time as well. It's been a pleasure. Take care. Take care, Marcia. Thank you. That's another episode of SCOTUS Talk. If you have a question about what's happening at the court, please send us an email at feedback at scotusblog.com or you can leave us a voicemail at 202-596-2906.